just by way of reminder, last week we saw in the text as Paul came to Jerusalem and found the very danger that he was warned about. It's exactly what we saw last week. He was slandered. He was falsely accused, not only of teaching against the temple, but of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And and in this moment, a mob formed against Paul, and Paul was saved by none other than the Roman soldiers. And so in this moment, as we read our text this morning, Paul asks the soldiers for permission to speak, to defend himself. And that is what is happening as we read our text this morning. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Beginning in Acts chapter 21, verse 37. Hear now the word of God. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. And from them I received letters to the brothers and journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that I that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving. 
and watching over the, garment, uh, the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful? For you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately And the tribune also was afraid, for they realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and he had had him bound. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to bless his word. Lord, your scripture is full of comfort and grace. But your word also calls us to difficult tasks as well. Would you be with us this morning, Lord, so that we would willingly and joyfully receive even your most difficult commands to share the gospel even in hostile conditions. Would you help us to understand your word and would you apply it to our very hearts this morning, bringing conviction if necessary and comfort where needed. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The other day, Aaron and I were on a date having some frozen yogurt. And as we were sitting there, there was a woman who was driving through the parking lot and she may have been going a little too fast. And as she was driving through the parking lot, there was another woman right in front of the window where we were sitting and she put her car into reverse. And you can imagine what happened. The two cars collided and we were embarrassed for both of the ladies involved. But then the woman who was backing out of the parking space actually put her car into park, and I think she put it back into neutral and backed into the car again, which was really, was a magnificent way to sort of conclude the whole thing. Um, I think she believed she had put her car in park, and instead she put it back into reverse again. And so Aaron and I were, were sort of sitting there and watching this whole event transpire. Of course, they got out of their vehicles. They were very annoyed with each other. Um, and it looked like they had decided they better call the police to sort of file a police report. And uh, as Aaron and I were sitting there, we we decided we weren't going to stick around. Uh, But we did sense that both of these women would have very different stories to tell the police officer. And yet, if they were both being truthful, the police officer would at once get a very different report. And at the same time, he would actually have a fuller idea of what happened as long as both of them were being truthful. Our eyes are the same way. As long as both of our eyes are working, the truth is that each of our eyes conveys a totally unique image from the other one. We're looking at the same thing, and yet the images are completely different. Yet our brain takes those two images, harmonizes them, brings them together into a single image. That's why you can catch a ball when someone throws it at you. And that's sort of what happens here this morning, because we get a second image from what we saw earlier in the book. Because back in Acts 
chapter 9, we see Luke telling his version of Paul's conversion story about how Paul moved from being a Pharisee and an enemy of Christ to now being a follower of Jesus. And in this morning's narrative, we are going to revisit the same narrative, but this time it's not from Luke's perspective. This is Paul's own autobiography. This is Paul telling us his story. And the the thing that you notice if you read both of these, especially if you compare them to each other, is that Paul includes some things that Luke leaves out, and Luke includes things that Paul decides not to mention. And so Paul gives his autobiography, and he does it for a reason. He does it because he needs to persuade this crowd that he is innocent of what he's accused of. He needs to persuade them that he's innocent. So remember the charge that's been laid against Paul. It's, we heard it a while back. We didn't hear it in our reading this morning. But if you remember, he was accused of teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our custom. It was a very challenging passage where we're trying to sort of understand why Paul goes to the temple in the first place. And the reality is he's accused of very serious things. And so that charge sends the crowd into a frenzy. And in the passage, Paul says to the Roman soldiers, I'm a citizen of Tarsus. He doesn't tell him he's a Roman citizen yet. He says, would you let me calm this crowd down and speak to them? And so they do give him permission. And so today's passage is two things. On the one hand, this is Paul's version of his life story. And on the other hand, This is his defense, which he seems to sort of get cut off at the end. He does not get to complete his story. He he stops. As soon as Gentiles get mentioned, they go bonkers. And so in the process of hearing Paul convey his story, we discover that not only was Paul not an enemy of Judaism, but he became a recipient and preacher of, of its fulfillment. Now, in a day and age, and especially in recent weeks where we've seen violence against Jewish people undertaken by a man who was actually a member of a Presbyterian church, believe it or not, I think it is important for us to be able to positively understand the attitude that Paul had toward Judaism, that it was not the enemy, and that he was preaching its fulfillment. And so we see these things this morning under three headings, bona fide credentials, born again conversion, and breathtaking calling. So the first this morning, we see Paul's bona fide credentials. Uh, Paul has come to Jerusalem, you probably remember, last week, specifically because he has an offering for the Jewish Christians who are in this city. And so very soon after Paul arrives, in fact, the next day after he gets there, James comes to him and says, there's been a misunderstanding about your views. We can fix this misunderstanding if you just go to the temple and take care of a few things, which Paul agrees to do. However, if you were here last week, you know things did not go well in the temple. He's accused of two things. First, he's accused of preaching against the law in the temple. And second, he's accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which isn't true. And so the people go into a frenzy. The Roman guards snap into action. They save his life. They bring him into the barracks. And then Paul steps forth to speak to the crowd. And his plan seems to be that he's going to build up what I'm going to call his bona fide credentials. 
He wants them to know his credentials. Now, what he says here that Luke doesn't tell us in Acts 9 is his own upbringing. Here's a phrase that Luke never told us before. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So it's actually pretty smart. He does a little name dropping. Name dropping is not always classy. It's not always the right thing to do, but sometimes it does help get the job done. And here he mentions Gamaliel, because Gamaliel in Jerusalem is a big deal. It's like going into a Presbyterian pulpit in Jackson, Mississippi, and mentioning that you know Ligon Duncan. You know, it just kind of helps a little bit. Uh, And Gamaliel was a big deal in Jerusalem. He had a Hebrew school in Jerusalem with over a thousand students at the time. So this guy is no pushover. Um, to, to have this guy as your teacher was another way of saying, you know, I wasn't educated by the crazy kooks or something like that. He wants them to know he's not from some strange fringe group, but he had the same teacher that these people he's talking to have. And then he points out his zeal. He says, I love the law and I love God. It's not like I came here with some bias against those things. Now, later in Galatians, he's going to make the point, none of them brought him any closer to God. None of these things brought him forgiveness. But Paul's point right here isn't to trample on those things or talk them down. Because if you look at what he does here, he wants them to see that he has this long history with Judaism. He's got this very strong pedigree in exactly what this crowd cherishes, exactly what they think is important. And that is something I think, in a sense, Southerners understand, that there's just this need to have a shared history. Um, I knew a pastor in our presbytery at one point. He made the difficult decision. I'm going to address the sin of racism from the pulpit. And when he talked to me about it later, he said, the people received my preaching, but I could tell. And some people said to me that basically they sort of dismissed what I said Because they said, eh, this Yankee's coming down here. He's trying to lecture us about something he doesn't really understand. And so because he didn't have the sort of bona fides that people sometimes look for, some sort of dismissed him as if he didn't really know what he was talking about. I know another man in this presbytery. He's an elder, and he teaches history at Mississippi College. And I don't think he'd mind me mentioning his name. His name is Otis Pickett. And Otis Pickett, he sometimes will talk about Uh, The racial history of Mississippi, that's one of his areas of study. And when he speaks, he will sometimes let crowds know. In fact, I think every time I've heard him talk about this, he's mentioned this before he begins, that he is a Southerner and he is a Mississippian through and through. And and, uh, he talks about who his parents are and who his family is and where he came from because Southerners understand there's something valuable there. There's something valuable about having a shared history And it creates this sense that this guy is one of us. He didn't just come here to lecture us about something that's not part of his story. He's reckoning with his own history just as much as he's talking to us about our history. And sometimes that is very valuable to let people know where you're coming from. And that's what Paul does here in a sense. He lets them know, I'm connected to you. I'm part of all of this. I'm not somebody who came in here as your enemy trying to turn over the tables and ruin everything. And what's unique about Paul's account here that we we didn't really learn before in Luke is 
Paul's background. For Luke, the details of where Paul is born, where he's from, the fact that he was raised in Jerusalem, he was educated there, those weren't germane to the narrative in Acts 9. He didn't need to mention those things, but now, now it's important. Those details become important, and here's why. Paul's speech here is all about showing them that he is the real deal. He is one of them. He's not like some Gentile. He hates the temple. He's been looking for an excuse to trick people into tearing it down. And he wants them to know that's not him. That's not why he came here. In fact, he was so eager in his Judaism, he was actually persecuting Christians to death. And he says so. And he says that the Jewish leaders can even attest that he was doing this. So Paul is doing his level best to speak to this crowd in a way that they know he has no reason to hate the law. He's got no bias against the law. Nothing in his past, nothing in his background screams enemy of Moses or enemy of the temple. And in fact, he mentions in 2217, what is the first thing he does after being baptized? He went to the temple in Jerusalem to pray. That is not the action of somebody who suddenly hates the temple. He isn't the enemy. Instead, the first part of Paul's speech here is saying the opposite. I'm one of you. I know what this temple means to you. I'm not here to destroy our history, but I am preaching that it's been fulfilled in Christ. And so the first point here this morning is bona fide credentials. Paul has them, and he makes sure to present them. The second part of Paul's speech is born-again conversion. See, Paul, <clears throat> he wants them to know, yes, that's where I'm coming from. That is my history, but you need to know why I'm different now. And so he tells them that he's no longer a persecutor of the church. Now he's a follower of Jesus, and he's a part of the church. And he tells how on the road to Damascus, God struck him blind and brought him to Ananias so that Ananias could pray for him and minister to him. And I mentioned this before, but this story is also told to us in Luke, in, by Luke in Acts chapter 9. And there's a lot of overlap between Luke's version and Paul's version. But here, Paul gives us much greater insight into what Ananias said to him. So for one, Ananias tells Paul of his mission, which we'll talk about in the next point. But he also tells him, be baptized and wash away your sins. So notice this, for Ananias, baptism isn't just a public testimony. It isn't just something we do to say, God did this to me, or I'm saying this about myself. But for him, baptism is a sign that points to washing. Now, there are some church traditions, they insist baptism must be done in one certain way. You have to be completely immersed under the water. And the argument that's made is that baptism represents the death of the old man, the rising up of the new man. And yet for Ananias, that's not what it is. For Ananias, baptism is washing. So this is part of the reason why in our church, we aren't concerned with how much water there is. Our concern is that there is water because water represents washing. And that's Paul's first experience with baptism as well. Ananias says, be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. I think it's sometimes tempting to look at those who've come before us and we can sort of end up revering them in a, in a way 
the sort of, we look at them as if they walk two feet off the ground. Like they're different somehow from the rest of us. But consider this. Ananias looks at this man and he says, I know you have sin. You need to have your sin washed away. The greatest, most important leader and preacher in the history of the Christian church who wasn't Jesus was a sinner just like you and me. And he was baptized just like you and me. He was a a man with a sinful past just like all of us have a history of sin as well. For some Christians, their past is very dark and even painful to talk about. Paul's is like that. Paul's is one of those testimonies that you hear and it's just extraordinary from beginning to end. But thankfully, there are many people who are converted at an early age and God saves them a great deal of heartache and sin before he rescues them. And if that's you, I do not want you to lament that you don't have a quote unquote exciting story. Because I want you to know that every sinner who is saved, that is an exciting story. Whether your story is as dramatic as Paul's, where you hated the faith and opposed Christianity and then you were saved later. Or whether you could say, I just believed. I was born and I raised in the church and I was taught the truth and I just believed it. Some Christians really can even struggle to believe that they really are saved at all because their past is so dark. Because their past is full of so many heinous Sins. Paul's story is here for somebody like you. If that's you, if you struggle to believe that you're really saved because you say, my sins are so serious, the things I have done, the things on my old record are so bad, I can't imagine that they would be washed away. Paul is here so that you can never say, my sins are too bad to be forgiven. Were you a murderer of Christians? Did you persecute the church? You can't get more shameful than what Paul was doing. And yet Paul finds forgiveness. There is no mark against us that can't be cleansed by the work of Christ. We need to be reminded of that. I think because we often forget the amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like us. We can sing it. Though maybe in our minds we think I'm the exception. Mine's too bad. And Paul stands before this crowd A forgiven man, washed in Christ. He knows God's amazing grace. And he wants them to know that he has had a born-again conversion. He has a new heart now by the grace of God. And he testifies to all of them what God's done in his life. But finally this morning, we see a breathtaking calling. When Paul comes to Ananias, he's told something that we didn't hear in Luke 9. Paul tells us that Ananias informs him. This is what what he says. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. In other words, Paul was saved so he could do exactly what he's doing before this crowd. Ananias, it turns out, was the one who not only prayed for Paul, but he told Paul what his purpose was. He was saved to be an evangelist. And an evangelist is just someone who tells good news to people. That's what Paul was created for. 
But he also hears more because God warns him it's not safe in Jerusalem now. And at first, Paul thinks that he'll be okay because of his history. He thinks his history is going to be like a shield to him, like it's going to protect him. And it's almost funny, the first thing it seems like Paul does after he gets converted is he argues with God. He says, no, no, uh, I I approved of the murder of Stephen. These people will leave me alone. The memory of this shameful moment has so imprinted itself upon Paul's heart and mind. Here he is now before this crowd, 20 plus years after the event, and he is confessing this dark sin before this crowd of people who are all perched and ready to judge him. And on the one hand, he knows it's a terrible confession. It's an awful thing that I'm telling you as a crowd. But then on the other hand, he also knows it's part of who he is. And maybe, just maybe, they'll believe me if I tell them this unbelievable, shameful thing that I've done. Paul argues this to God. He says, maybe they'll leave me alone. And God doesn't respond. He doesn't debate. He says, go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. God doesn't argue with us. He tells us. He doesn't persuade us. He lets us know what we will do. And God has already told him through Ananias that his task is to be an evangelist. And in this moment, he learns whom he is to be an evangelist to. And the answer is the Gentiles. Talk about a fish out of water. This is a bona fide Jews Jew who is now going to crawl up onto dry land and spend his life ministering to people who are the opposite of what he was before. (coughs) We've talked and the book of Acts has shown us the importance of the Gentiles, just how important the Gentiles are. We've talked about the fact that in the Old Testament, God's plan was to include Gentiles and make them part of the household of faith. It was always God's plan for Gentiles to join the family of Abraham. And this moment is where everything turns in the whole event that Paul is trying to accomplish here. Because what did he do? He mentioned the Gentiles. Apparently, nothing gets this crowd worked up like mentioning the Gentiles. And so they start yelling and chanting, and it's not as catchy the way it gets translated into English, but they say, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Maybe it had more of a ring to it when they repeated it over and over again at the moment, but it doesn't sound so great here. This is a call for death. They heard him being as gentle as he could. They don't want him out of Jerusalem. They don't want him out of Israel. They don't want him sent to Africa or Europe. They want him dead. Because of his breathtaking calling. They cannot imagine that the gospel would be taken to the Gentiles. They hear about him getting saved. They'll stay quiet for that. They'll hear about his life in Judaism persecuting Christians. They'll sit still for that. But mentioning the gospel going to the Gentiles, they want him dead. And at the end of the passage, the crowd is riled up once again. And so the Roman soldiers decide they'll interrogate him. And they decide the most effective way to do that is through torture. Let's elicit a false confession from this man. 
But as they stretch Paul out, as they pull out the whip so that they can remove the information from him, Paul alerts them to the fact he's not just a citizen of Tarsus, he's a citizen of Rome too. For us, this doesn't mean much. Uh, Every person born in America, on American soil, is an American citizen, but that's not how Roman citizenship worked at all. It was very rare to live in the bounds of Rome and actually be a Roman citizen. The honor of being a Roman citizen was unusual. There are very few people who are Romans, especially by birth, but they are who you would think of as the social elite. It was very expensive. It cost a tremendous amount of money to become a Roman citizen, and it was considered a huge honor. You actually see in verse 28, the tribune seems to not even believe him. He says, I bought this citizenship for a large, large sum. He probably looks at this haggard, sick, weakling of a man and cannot imagine that he would have a large sum. The sort of sum that could buy his citizenship. But Paul's response is, I'm a citizen by birth. Those soldiers never would have guessed they were standing in the presence of a real Roman Citizen. He showed no, showed no signs of wealth, no signs of privilege, and yet that's exactly what he is. Once they find this out, it changes everything. Roman citizens received special protection and accusi- from accusations by non-citizens. They were protected from certain forms of torturous punishment. They were permitted to have a crowd before they could e- a, a, a trial before they could even be beaten. And what we're about to see is that this is the true turning point in Paul's story. The due process of the Roman citizen system is about to kick in. And when it does, this is going to begin a journey for Paul that ends in Rome. But isn't it interesting? Paul has the respect of the Romans and not of the Jews. All the personal pedigree counts for nothing. The care... The fairness in how he tells his story all counts for nothing. Because to an unsafe person, our whole message is offensive and upsetting unless the Spirit changes that person's heart. Christian, you may not be an evangelist like Paul, and you may not be an apostle like him either. In fact, I'm sure that you're not an apostle like him. But we are all called to share the gospel of what God has done for us. If someone asks us, why aren't you... Like these other people, we need to have an answer for it. So let's be resolved that we don't obey the command to preach the gospel so that we'll be loved or so that we'll be respected. Don't selectively share the word of God just with friends and just with those who love you, but tell the gospel to people who might even mistreat you too. And when we do that, we'll be following the example of Jesus. We may pay a price for it. It may not be the safe thing to do. But it is the right thing to do. Let's pray. Our Father, would you make us faithful to the task you've given us? Would you protect us from the need to be affirmed by the world? Lord, it is very easy for us to want to perform or live in such a way that the watching world looks at us and applauds, and yet your word says that those who live a faithful life in you will be persecuted. Give us the heart of Paul, Lord, 
As the recipients of the amazing grace of God, protect us from the fear of man that can so easily paralyze us and keep us from doing your will. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.